Okay, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. You may also want to have your finger in Acts 19, our New Testament reading, as well as our Gospel reading of Luke 21. Uh, we will uh, be looking at those as well during this sermon. So as we, we've seen last week, Paul makes this abrupt change from, from chapter 15 into chapter 16. And chapter 15 is all about our Christian hope. It's all about the resurrection. It's about our final destination in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And chapter 15 ends with that triumphal cry, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then chapter 16 comes right back to some very basic and some very practical manners. Last week we looked at the first four verses of the chapter where Paul gives instructions for taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And in these verses we're given some very practical principles as New Testament believers on managing our resources, our stewardship, and on how we can give to the Lord's work. Well, in today's reading, Paul discusses his upcoming itinerary. He gives them his travel plans. And it's tempting for us to skip right over these five verses, seeing them solely as applicable to the original audience. It was useful for them to know when Paul was going to come and visit them, but we certainly don't need to know this. What what possible benefit could plans made almost 2,000 years ago be for us today? What could we possibly learn from this information? But we know. We know all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for training, for rebuke, for instruction, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So even these travel plans must contain some universal application for us. And this is why we're going to not just zip over these verses. We're going to dig in and we're going to see what the Lord is teaching us, even from travel plans in this passage. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Let's pray. Lord, we do know that your word is God-breathed. We know that your word is life to us. And Father, I pray that you will be with me, that I will faithfully communicate the truth contained in this word. And I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that each one who hears my voice, whether on the live stream or whether here, Lord, will have our hearts opened and we will hear what you want us to hear and we will see Christ and you will be glorified. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the week before last, I got a, an email, an email newsletter from, from Tom Wright. Some of you may remember that name. He's one of the missionaries we support here at Northgate. And those of you not familiar, Tom teaches theology classes in French-speaking Africa. And in the newsletter, he included a story about a young wife and a young mother who was attending one of the seminars he was teaching in the country of Benin. And she asked on the first day, she said, why can't women be pastors in my denomination? And as he talked with her, he noticed her bitterness and, and just her anger at this requirement. She felt that she had the gifts. She felt she had the calling to be a pastor, but her denomination would not allow it. And Tom didn't initially answer the question, but he said that he he asked her if she would just give her a day or two for him to go through the seminar and when in the right place, he would address it. 
And when the right time came, he shared with her at length his understanding of the biblical position. And he couldn't tell by her reaction at the time, but he found out later that this issue actually had greatly troubled her for years. And now, for the first time, she actually understood her denomination's position. And she was actually had peace with it. She actually understood it. She agreed with it. And she described it as like she had a, a deliverance. It was the first time that she felt unburdened. And what she had is what I call an aha moment. And, I, and can any of you ever remember having an aha moment? Maybe in a, a sermon or maybe in a Bible study or maybe reading through scripture where the Holy Spirit spoke to you and gave you some clarity. I know this has happened to me. I had over the years many of these aha moments. There'd be certain things that would say in a sermon or, or in a Bible study. It might even have been something in passing, but it was what I needed to hear. It might even have been in a discussion. And something just clicked, and it gave me this greater understanding, a specific insight about how God works, about how his world works. And and really, my understanding took this this quantum leap. Well, one of these insights, one of these aha moments that happened to me was in the summer of of 2001. Lynn was in vet school, and and her uh, Bible study, her Christian Veterinary Fellowship Bible study, did the Henry Blackaby study, Experiencing God. It's very well-known. I don't know how many of you have probably have done that. It's a well-known study. And I don't remember much of the study, but I remember one of the foundational principles that Blackaby talked about. And I still remember 20 years later, and it has really become fundamental to my own thinking and to my own ministry. And I don't know if I'm going to word it right, but this is how I remember 20 years later. The principle is basically this. Don't come to God with our own agenda. Don't come to God with our own plans, asking that he will bless what we've already decided to do. Rather, we are through prayer, through observation, through, through patience, through silence, we are to discover where God is working, where he's already working, and then we are to join him in his work. And that was revolutionary for me because it, it completely took, the, the, it took it off of me and onto God. God sets the agenda. I don't set the agenda. And really, this changes everything. I, I seek to discern where God is working, I look to see the opportunities that God brings to us, and that's where I work. And we've seen this here at Northgate. I remember six months after I moved to Albany, our city got hit with those series of tornadoes, you remember? And there was massive damage throughout the community. And we found ourselves in the middle of a ministry opportunity. We didn't plan for it. We didn't pray for it. None of the leaders saw this opportunity coming, but here it was. And God used this this little church to house dozens of volunteers coming all over the South to help help clean up efforts in our community. And due to our our denominational connections with Mission to North America and Rebuilding Hope Ministries and, and various different PCA churches coming here, God used this little church to minister to many, many families. I personally prayed with and shared the gospel with more people than I could remember during this time. And all of this was totally unexpected. All of this was totally unplanned. Well, I think we see in today's passage, in these five verses, how Paul followed the same principle of discerning where God is at work and then ministering in those places. And we see this really in the way Paul makes his travel plans. So look at the first uh, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. So Paul's intention here is not just to to simply pass by a short little visit. 
but he wants to spend some time with them. He wants to spend some quality time with them. And he's attempting really to time the visit so that he would be there for the winter months and he would be able to spend the entire winter with them. And as, as, as you would expect, the winter would be a, a difficult time to travel, so they would hunker down for a time. And he wants to hunker down with the Corinthians and, and spend that time teaching them, spend that time discipling them. In verse 6 he says, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. See, the, the purpose, Paul wants the Corinthians to see themselves as partners with him, as participants in Paul's own ministry. He wants them to help him on his journey, wherever the Lord leads. And you may remember in our study of 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, Paul talks specifically about how he preached the gospel and ministered to the Corinthians free of charge. Paul didn't ask anything from the Corinthians. Paul chose not to use his rights, rights as apostle, rights as a workman deserving his wages, so as to not put any obstacles whatsoever in the path of the gospel. See, the Corinthians were immature in their faith. They were not ready to be partners in the gospel, not ready to be partners in ministry. They were not ready to be giving spiritual blessings to others. They were simply taking. They were simply consumers. And Paul is hoping that by spending the winter with them, he can get them past this point where they are, get them to the point where they're not just simply consuming the spiritual blessings from others, but they're ready to be blessings themselves. He was hoping to get to the point where they were actually participants with them in this missionary work. And really, this trajectory is true for every single Christian. We are to take the gospel to the unbeliever. That's the first part. Of it. We are to take it to the mission field. This is our primary focus of the missionary. I mean, we, we just prayed for, for Evan and, and going off to Madrid. Evan is going to be taking the gospel to these college students in just in a few days. And these students really are going to have no interest in the gospel. They see no need for Christ, even though they are the ones who potentially, through the work of Evan and the rest of the people on his team, they're going to receive this, this gift of eternal life, this gift of, that is of infinite value. And if they understood this, they would give them everything they had. They would certainly pay for, for their, their transport, their plane ticket, their housing. If they understood this, they would, be, they would be happy to do this. But they don't recognize the value. They don't recognize it at all. And that's why these teams are sent by those of us who do recognize the value. We recognize the value, so we send them. We know the people who are receiving it have no idea what they're going to get. And even if they're successful, even if they do, and we, we pray that this will happen, that they will actually get genuine converts, people who will, will hear the gospel, will respond, and will be, become a new creation in Christ, there's still time. They're going to still need much growth. They will need to be discipled. They will need to be taught. See, during this time, they will still be consumers. They're not ready to go out and take the, the gospel to the rest of Spain. They're going to need to be trained. They're not ready to take the gospel of others. They, they need to be still, still have the spiritual blessing given to them before they're ready to give it to others. But the goal is to get them beyond this point, to get them to the point where they're not just taking, they're actually giving, they're actually a blessing to others. See, the, the Great Commission charges us to go and make disciples. Not just to go and make converts. It's great to get a profession of faith. It's great to get them saved. But that is not the end goal. The end goal is to make them disciples, to make them followers of Christ. Make them ready to go and take the gospel to others. Make them ready to share their faith with others. Ready to be a blessing to others. Ready to, to follow their own individual calling, whatever that may be, to glorify Christ. And sadly, many Christians in our churches today 
are just like the Corinthians. They never get out of this consumer mode. It's all about them. It's all about where they can get their felt needs met. They only take. They see no need to give. They see no need to participate in the work of ministry, the work of Christ. And this is the goal of discipleship in the church, to spiritually grow Christians, to be ready to follow their specific call on their lives. And it's always a call away from self. It's always a a call to service, to serve others, to serve God. And we serve God through serving others. And this is the way we grow. And I think each of us needs to ask ourselves, am I a giver or am I a taker? Am I a grown-up serving in the kingdom of God or am I simply a child looking to be served, looking to be entertained? Now, don't get me wrong. There are are different seasons in life. There are times when, when we need the body of Christ to minister to us. But there are also times when, as mature believers, we need to minister to others. We can't always be a taker. We don't grow if we're always a taker. We grow by giving. We grow by teaching. And Paul hopes that by spending the winter with the Corinthians, that he can help them mature in this area so that they will be ready to partner with him in future journeys, wherever that may be. So this is Paul's plan. But Paul has been serving the Lord long enough to know that his plans are not always God's plans. And Paul acknowledges this fact in verse 7, where he says, For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. See, if the Lord permits. Paul recognizes that the Lord may have other plans for him. So he holds these plans tentatively. And what about us? Do we say the same thing? Do we say, if the Lord permits? Do we say, God willing? Or do we doggedly hold on to whatever our plans are? Whatever our plans, even if it's clear that the Lord does not permit. Do we get frustrated when, the, when God is not doing what we want him to do? Are we angry at his providence? Let's make this practical. Are we angry that we don't get that job we want? You know, we, we, we're looking for this is what I'm training for, and it just doesn't come. Or that house. I got the job, but I don't have a place to stay. And that house is not available. Or we're seeking to be married. We want, we want a spouse, and we just can't find the spouse. Are we angry with God? Do we get angry when God does not provide what we want? Do he doesn't do what we plan? Or do we ask the Lord, what are your plans? When we ask the Lord, where are you working? What are you doing? How can I participate in your plan? Rather than demanding that he blesses what we've already decided we want to do. And I think at this very moment that Paul is writing this letter, he's doing this exact thing. Paul is discerning. Paul is following where the Lord is at work. Look at what he says in in verse 8 in the first part of 9. He says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So for the time being, at least until Pentecost, Paul is staying where he is. He's, he's staying right where God has put him in Ephesus. So why? Because it says a wide door for effective work has opened for him. So Paul recognizes that God is at work in Ephesus. And Paul sees that there is much opportunity for the gospel to go forth. So he plans to stay. So the question is, what is going on in Ephesus? And for this, we need to look at our New Testament reading that Nathan read for us this morning. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And this chapter tells us about Paul's time that he was in Ephesus. And we don't know for sure if this is the the exact time that Paul is writing the letter. He may have been in Ephesus at another time, not recorded in Acts. But this chapter, if not talking about the exact circumstances that Paul was, was 
faced when he was writing this. He gives us a taste of what was going on in Ephesus. And it gives us a sample of what Paul is, is talking about. So again, if you turn to Acts chapter 19, and we'll look at some of these opportunities that Paul had in Ephesus at the time. So as soon as Paul enters Ephesus, we see his first opportunity. He meets, it says, some disciples. So it's clear that, that God is working in the city. But as we see in, in, in this verse, they're, they're not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John the Baptist. They don't know Jesus. So take a look at the, the first seven verses, beginning at the end of verse 1. So he's entering Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and, and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And, Jesus, and, and Paul asked them, into then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of, G of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So these disciples, they had partial information. God was definitely at work with them. They had repented. They had been baptized by John, but that wasn't enough. They needed more. And this situation is very similar to what Nathan preached on last week in Acts chapter 10 about the conversion of, of the Gentile Cornelius. God was working with Cornelius just as he's working and drawing these Ephesians, but they needed the missing piece. And the missing piece is Jesus. They needed Jesus. They needed to know the gospel. And as soon as Paul provides this missing piece for them, and as soon as Paul lays his hands on them, notice that the Holy Spirit then comes upon them, anointing them, equipping them. And what purpose? What purpose are they being equipped for? They're being equipped for ministry. They're not going to just stay where they are. They're given the gifts that they need, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, that will enable them to also communicate this truth, the truth of the gospel to others. And these gifts are also a sign that their knowledge was now complete. It was a sign that they had actually heard the true gospel. See, it would have been very easy for Christianity to, to splinter at this point, right at the point of its inception, as, as people who had this in, incomplete gospel, they thought that was it, and they go off and propagate this, and not knowing the true gospel. But God brings Paul to provide this missing knowledge, and he confirms Paul's gospel by giving them the spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit and the tongues and the prophecies. It was all to, conf to confirm this. And clearly Paul's ministry here is a teaching ministry. Clearly Paul is to provide this missing piece. He is to equip them with the necessary information of the gospel for them to do their ministry. Moving on to verses 8 through 10, we read, And Paul entered the, the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Ty Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we see that Paul first starts off teaching in the synagogue. He does this for three months. Now this is where the Jews met. So he is teaching right now the Jews about Jesus. But then after facing some opposition, Paul then moves where he's teaching. Instead of teaching in the synagogue, he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And you, you may notice, there may be a, a note in your Bible here, that some manuscripts have, it says, from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. So this would have been from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. So five hours a day, Paul is teaching. Every day, five hours a day, and he does this for two years. 
That's an amazing amount of opportunity that he has. And what is the result of all this teaching? We see in verse 10. It says, So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So I'm sure this is hyperbole, but just think of how many heard of it. The gospel went forth. When Paul was teaching in the synagogue, only the Jews were hearing the gospel. But now that he's reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus, both Jews and Greeks are being exposed. And this is not saying that they were all became believers, but they all heard about Jesus. They all had the knowledge they had. The word of God was going forth. The gospel was going forth. The complete gospel. And there is power in those words. There is power in the gospel. Again, what an opportunity Paul had in Ephesus. And not only is, is he given a great opportunity to preach and a great opportunity to teach, we also see God doing mighty miracles through Paul. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And what is being described here, this is not normal. This is not even normal for Paul. This is clearly a special working of the Holy Spirit. As Paul stated again in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians passage, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And Paul takes advantage of that door being opened. Paul sees where God is working, and that's where Paul is going to work. That's where he is going to stay. Paul's kind of like a, it's like a surfer riding a wave. See, the surfer doesn't create the wave. The surfer, he reads the water. He sees where and when the wave is going to be coming. And then he gets there so he can be underneath it. And then he, ra- he rides that wave for as long as it lasts. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is riding that wave. He doesn't know how long this wave is going to last. But he is going to ride it until the Holy Spirit closes that door and opens another for him. And my friends, this is what we are to do. We have to be always watching, looking for those opportunities where God is at work, where the Holy Spirit is at work. And we need to be like that surfer. We need to ride that wave as, as long as it lasts, just like what we did when, when God brought these storms. We rode that wave as long as it lasted. But we also need to be careful here because it's easy for us to misunderstand and think that the only way that the Holy Spirit moves is in these big and noticeable ways with lots of people, with lots of noise, with lots of excitement, with lots of miracles. No, this is not the case at all. Sometimes he moves this way, but it is not always the way the Holy Spirit works. In fact, many of these big, exciting, and and, and noticeable things, these are really easy for us to manufacture on our own, and we often try to do that. We have lots of people. We have lots of noise, lots of excitement, lots of so-called miracles. And it's all completely devoid of the Holy Spirit. So don't confuse uh, noses, nickels, and noise for a genuine Holy Spirit revival. See, a genuine revival, a genuine work of the Holy Spirit will include conviction of our sin. It will include a, a striving after God. It will include a hunger and a thirst for God, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for holiness. And it will not be built solely on excitement, but it will be built on a knowledge of God, a knowledge of his word. And it will produce a genuine love, a love for God, a love for his word, a love for his church, a love for the lost, a deep desire to bring the gospel to the lost, just like Evan and his team are bringing the gospel to the lost. And there will be a hunger and a thirst for prayer. Prayer meetings will break out. Just like we're seeing with our friends over at Porterfield. There will be a a desire 
for an intimacy with God. This is the sign that God is at work. But there's another important principle that we must understand. And if we fail to understand this principle, we, we we will be bewildered, we'll be discouraged, we will be frustrated in our Christian work. And the principle is this. Where God is at work, Satan is also at work. Where there are many opportunities, there will also be much opposition. Again, verse 9 says, For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. See, the wide door that God opened for Paul in Ephesus also brought many adversaries. Continuing in in Acts 19, we see false teachers and the unconverted really attempting to, to cash in on all the excitement that's going on, the moving of the Spirit. We see this in verses 13 and 14 of Acts 19. It says, Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over who over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, or by Paul, whom Paul proclaims. And says, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So these were itinerant Jewish exorcists. Really, they were in it for the money. They, they were hucksters. This is the way they earned their living. They were certainly not Christians. They did not know the gospel. They did not proclaim the gospel. They're simply trying to get in on this flashy and exciting miracles that's going on. They said, this is one more thing I could add to my my tool belt. And they saw the mighty miracles done by Paul and the disciples in the name of Jesus. They said, we can too. We can just say the name of Jesus. And they invoked these names, and they figured that would bring them lucrative business. And I think what happens next to these pretenders, this is one of the most humorous portions in all of Scripture. If you look at verses 15 and 16, it says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. See, these pretenders, they were unconverted. They had no power. They were no match for this demonic spirit. And thus what happens to them, they become humiliated. There's no power in just using the name of Jesus if you're unconverted. They're basically thinking like pagans. They're thinking of incantations and magic. This is, this is make-believe at best to them, and it's demonic at worst. But notice that despite this opposition, what is the result? Look at verses 17 through 20. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now, who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them that, and, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Man, this is, this is what genuine revival looks like. This is what it, what it looks like. So what was the result? This opposition to God, it actually brought God glory. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. God was glorified. Many of them were converted. Look specifically at verse 18. It says they, they, these new believers were confessing. They were repenting of the evil that they practiced. And this repentance wasn't in words only. They backed up their words with action. They burned their magic books. Look at the cost of these books. It says 50,000 pieces of silver. Each one of these pieces of silver, this represented a day's wage. So the total cost of this material was 
50,000 days of labor. Just using today's numbers, say a person makes $200 a day, that's 50,000 a year, that would be $10 million was what was burned. This is a genuine sign of conversion. So there will always, there will always be opposition to God's work. There will always be opposition to God's people. There will always be opposition to the proclamation of God's word, and the proclamation of the gospel. And God is sovereign. And God uses this very opposition for his purposes. He uses them for the ultimate good of his people and to the glory of his name. And this fact is true of, of all opposition we face. We, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. We know that this opposition and our enduring this opposition will always bring God glory. It will ultimately work out for our good. But this doesn't mean that this opposition will be easy. Certainly not. It doesn't mean that it will be pleasant. It will not. Oftentimes it is excruciating. Look at the opposition we see at the last half of this chapter. Here we see a riot. And what was the cause of the riot? Look at verses 24 to 27. It says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So what were they really afraid of? What was the real cause of the riot? It was fear that Paul's teaching would cut into their profits, the profits of the silversmith. It's basically all about money. This was the cause of the riots. Really, Artemis wasn't their true idol. Their true idol was the money that they made off of selling these idols of Artemis. My friends, it's the same is true today. Our true idol is also money. When Christianity starts to hit people in the wallet, that's when you see real opposition. Right? There are billions and billions of dollars made in sinful practices. The abortion industry, the pornography industry, much of the sinful ent- entertainment industry. And attacking these sins will always bring the wrath of those who profit from these sins. Even as I re- preached last week about Christian stewardship and, and the fact that everything that we have belongs to God. Our money, our possessions, our time, our talent, our gifts, our ability, they all belong to the Lord. And they are to be used not according to the way we want to use them, our desires, but according to his priorities. And preaching this will bring the wrath. The wrath of those who want to keep these God-given gifts all to themselves, ignoring God's priorities. And at times, this opposition will be brutal. Look at what happened in Ephesus after Demetrius stirs up the silversmiths in verses 28 and 29. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with much confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travels. So look what happened to these, these men, Gaius and, and Aristarchus. They're attacked by this angry mob. This is a dangerous situation. These men were brutally beaten. They, they could have had their homes destroyed, their families attacked. They could have even been killed. And this is the type of opposition that the Christian church has faced throughout church history. And there are places in the world today where this type of brutality is happening. Yet even today it's happening. My friends, there's no guarantee that this won't happen to us sometime in the future. This type of 
brutality will happen right here. And if we're honest, the prospect that we may one day face this type of persecution for Christ, it frightens us. I know it certainly frightens me. And I want to close by looking at our gospel reading in Luke. So if you just turn into Luke 21, verses 10 through 19. So these are Jesus' own words, and he prepares his disciples for the reality that many of them will face this type of persecution in service of him. So Luke 21, starting at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So already he's talking about some pretty scary stuff. He's talking about wars. He's talking about earthquakes. He's talking about famines. He's talking about pestilence. That's like, think of COVID. Just think of even more deadly pandemics than COVID. And this would have been bad enough. This would certainly get our attention. But it gets even worse. Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and priests, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. See, now it gets personal. Now they're coming after you. Now they're coming after me. They're coming after Christians. We get a target on the back. And what does Jesus say about this time? Verse 13. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. What? This will be your opportunity? I thought this, this certainly sounds like opposition to me. But this will be our op- this will be our opportunity. See, this seems like the things that we, we want to desperately avoid. How could this be an opportunity? Well, isn't it just like God? Isn't it just like God to use the worst thing that can happen to us and make it into an opportunity? An opportunity for us to bear witness. An opportunity for us to bring him glory. An opportunity for us to, ch- to achieve our highest purpose. Right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So God is giving us this opportunity. But God is also so gracious to us. He knows we're weak. He knows that we are fearful. He knows we are terrified by this possibility. And these next words he gives us, I think, brings us comfort and peace. Continuing in verse 14, Jesus says, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. See, Jesus is saying we won't fail. We won't fail. He said we don't have to to worry about the words. We don't have to worry that uh, we'll get to the point and we'll squander our opportunity. We don't have to worry that not only will we suffer, but we'll also fail to glorify God. And why is this? Because Jesus himself will give us the words. He will give us the wisdom. And this wisdom, none of our adversaries will be able to withstand. None of our adversaries will be able to contradict. But verses 16 and 17, these are the ones that really trouble us. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. I certainly don't like that. We don't like that at all. But even when the very worst, the very worst from a human perspective happens to us, even when we are betrayed by those closest to us, betrayed by parents, betrayed by by brothers, even when we are hated by all, even when we are put to death, Jesus reminds us of his truth. He reminds us of his reality. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So my friends, when, not if, but when each one of us face 
this type of persecution, because of our faith, because of Christ, we are to hold firm. We are to trust him. We are to trust that he is able and willing to save us. He will remain faithful. He will give us the words to successfully bring him glory and to endure whatever he gives to us. And even more so, know that Christ will protect us. He has promised that that not a hair on our head will perish. And for the Christian, for the person who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a new creation, is born again, the very worst thing that can happen to us, take away our lives, is really the best thing that can happen to us. For those of us covered by the blood of Christ, we will immediately, we will immediately see our Savior's face in glory. We will hear those words that we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servants. So let me just tie all this together. Here, here are four brief takeaways that we have from this passage, 1 Corinthians 16. And the first is, always be alert. Always be alert where God is at work. Make plans, of course, but don't be afraid to change those plans if, to gain, if when we gain a greater understanding of where God is at work. Recognize that God is the one we need to follow. It's not our plans. That's first. Second, seek out those opportunities. Surf that wave that God gives. Ride it for as long as we can. Ride it for his glory. That's second. And third, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when we face opposition. Don't be intimidated when we face opposition for following God and working where God is working. There will always be opposition when God's servant is following God's will. That is, that is the default. So don't be surprised. And lastly, fourth, don't fear the opposition. God is sovereign. He is with you. He will protect you. He will enable you to bring him glory, no matter how difficult the situation. In fact, the greatest opposition, the greatest obstacles are also our greatest opportunity to bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your servant, Paul. We thank you how you have worked throughout biblical history, throughout church history. And Father, I pray for each one of us here. We don't want to face any uh, we don't want to face opposition. But Father, help us to want to be faithful more than avoiding pain. Father, give us the ability to see where you are working, to see these opportunities, and to be focused like a laser beam on them. That is our most important thing, that we want to bring you glory, regardless of what it happens to us. Give us that ability to withstand whatever you and your providence give to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.